Cubano sandwiches, plantain tostones, and mojitos. This week, we're in the Little Havana neighborhood of Miami. Traveling the world to bring you delicious dishes, tasty beverages, and interesting experiences. This is the Destination Eat Drink Podcast on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. I'm Brent Peterson. This is Destination Eat Drink, the travel podcast for foodies. This is the show where we explore the world and its unique cuisine. This week, we're in the neighborhood of Little Havana in Miami. And my guest for this culinary tour is Robin Webb of Miami Culinary Tours. Robin's written cookbooks and now gives foodie tours in Miami, including the Little Havana neighborhood. We talk about the origin of this unique place and how it's become home to more than just people with Cuban heritage. And of course, that means there's a wide variety of dishes to try in Little Havana. Havana. We have a Cubano and learn why the famous sandwich owns as much to Key West as it does to Cuba. Plus, plantain tostones and all the different empanadas Little Havana has to offer. Then we stop at the Ventanita for a cup of Cuban-style coffee and cap off our visit with a mojito. If that sounds like a full day, it sure is. So let's get talking to Robin Webb of Miami Culinary Tours. Destination Eat Drink. Robin, thanks for joining me on Destination Eat Drink today. We want to talk about uh, Little Havana in Miami, Florida. But before we get into that, uh, the specific dishes and drinks and stuff, let's get our bearings a little bit. Um, where exactly is Little Havana in Miami, and how how did it come to be? Sure. Well, first of all, thank you for having me, Brent. This is very exciting, and uh, your show I know is listened to many many people, so I'm very honored to be here today with you. Oh, good. Little Havana is actually in our western section of our city, and just to give you a little orientation, most of the tourists that come to Miami, and of course to Miami Beach, most of the attractions that they're interested in are in. A little bit more east. So western portion of our city is where the beloved neighborhood of Little Havana is. And it came about in two different ways. Each of them are related to each other. Of course, when Fidel Castro came to power uh, in 1959 in Cuba, many of the Cubans uh, did not want to be under his regime. So they left. Uh, that was our first wave of Cubans coming here. And to make a new life for themselves, They, the wealthy ones in particular, the entrepreneurial ones, were able to get out. Uh, unfortunately, they had to leave most of their, their wealth in Cuba. But they made it to Miami because it was the closest uh, port, of course, only 90 miles away. And they came to the western part of the city, which actually Little Havana, to tell you a little trivia, Brent, is that Little Havana at one time didn't have any... Uh, Hispanic people at all. And it wasn't even called Little Havana. It was actually called Shenandoah. And it was a huge Jewish community. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was also Christian people as well, living side by side, but a huge Jewish community. And that's because the Jewish community, believe it or not, it's hard to really grasp this. Most people associate the old time Miami Beach with a lot of the Jewish population. And I'm Jewish, I'll just tell you. But uh, all the way up until 1945, there were anti-Semitic laws, believe it or not, on Miami Beach. So oh, wow. the Jewish population needed some place to live. So they lived in Shenandoah. Um, once the Cubans came, uh, fleeing Fidel Castro, they needed a place to live. The Jews and the Cubans really got along very well. 
for some obvious reasons, always fleeing from terror. Right, right. Um, the there's a couple of very uh, significant things about the neighborhood that helped the Cubans settle there. One, it was economical. It's not on it's not on water, and there is no sand. There's no beach. There's no water. Um, so whenever you live in Florida on your, on either water or this beach there, your rent your living expenses are going to be higher. So it was less it what didn't cost them that much money. And bear in mind again, these wealthy people had to leave a lot of their wealth in the country of Cuba. Um, that was one. Number two was that they were entrepreneurial. And when the Jewish population made way for them, a lot of the Jewish owned businesses just said, you know what, we're gonna move. We'll move over to Miami Beach or we'll go up the coast. Here, you may have our physical buildings. So the Cubans were able to start businesses. Uh, they had the physical building intact and they just moved right in, which was great. And they got back up on their feet. So for those two reasons, they came. Now, the second half of this is how did it really become burgeoning? Because at, there was a thought, of course, during the Bay of Pigs invasion in 1961, when the plan was to get Cuba back for all of these Miami, these Cuban exiles, these Miami uh, temporary, uh, they thought of their home as temporary in Miami because they really wanted to go back. And there was hope upon hope with the Bay of Pigs that it would succeed. Unfortunately, we all know from history, it did not exceed, uh, succeed. It was a complete and utter disaster. So the Cubans, well, this is what I always say, Brent, they made rum out of sugar cane, just like we make, <laughs> we make lemonade out of lemons. And Perfect. you know, they said, you know what? We got to stay. This is no longer going to be temporary for us in Miami. It is going to be permanent. So for those two reasons, uh, that is what Little Havana became. And Little Havana today, still many of the businesses are Cuban owned. But fortunately, and I like to think of it as fortunate, many other Hispanic populations live in Little Havana besides Cuban. So we have Nicaraguan and Venezuelan and Panamanian. Ecuadorian, and that's very exciting for our city um, because they, even though Hispanic cuisine, some people blanket it as just one thing, each of those Hispanic cuisines that I just mentioned, each bring a little something different. So that's kind of exciting. Before we talk about uh, the Cubans and some of the other Hispanic populations there, mm -hmm. you, you mentioned something. This is just blowing my mind that this used to be a Jewish uh, part of Miami. And you said that uh, after the Cubans came, after 1959, um, a lot of the Jewish people left. They went to, they they moved north or they went to Miami Beach or whatever. Right. My question to you, Robin, is, is there any vestiges, any remains, anything that we could see that would be from that time when it was a Jewish neighborhood? Well, yes, there is still remnants of it. Tower Theater, for instance, was built in 1926. Tower Theater is one of our most beloved Art Deco theaters. It's not like a multiplex. It is glamorous. It is delicious. Mm. It's, it's a wonderful, wonderful theater that we use today as an operating theater. And that was from 1926. So the theater was still there. Uh, another remnant is a very, it's closed right now, pandemic related, but one of the most popular and most beloved uh, music and bar venues called Ball and Chain. And that actually had Jewish owners and they were they were kind of rough and ready kind of guys. There's all kinds of intrigue and gossip about that place, which is really cool. Um, but they were Jewish. So um, 
and those buildings and those businesses ball and chain will reopen hopefully eventually soon but those businesses are are just so beloved and are so iconic and they're still there so in that regard yes um there are things that you could outright see that belong to the neighborhood well before the cuban settlement so let's talk a little bit about the food of little havana in miami and i think the first thing we should start talking about is the Cubano sandwich, because I think of of all the things that folks know about, this might be the most famous. I mean, there's Cuban restaurants popping up all over in the U.S., and you always see the Cubano right at the top of the menu. So talk a little bit about the Cubano. Sure. Well, Brent, hold on to your seat, because I'm going to tell you something that you may or may not know. What you can say about the Cuban sandwich, it may have been born in Cuba, but it was educated in Key West, Florida. (laughs) The truth about it, its evolution really, really sprung out of America more than anything else. So very briefly, I'll give you a little history and then we'll go into the lusciousness of the sandwich itself. What happened was there was a first recorded sandwich and it was made from slices of cassava. Uh, the bulbous, starchy vegetable. Mm -hmm. And this recorded sandwich (laughs) doesn't sound too appetizing because they took the two pieces of cassava and stuck wild birds in the center and they called it a sandwich. The sandwich kind of evolved a little bit when the Spanish came to the island to conquer it. They brought ham, they brought a few things, but the sandwich never really got anywhere. And so what happened was when Cubans were leaving Cuba, even well before Castro, we're talking, you know, this is 18th century, 17th century, they're leaving to go for freedom. They didn't want to be under the thumb of a conquistador. So they came and they came to Key West, Florida, because it was close, and they could also be employed in the cigar industry. The easiest thing to eat as a worker in a cigar factory, of course, is a sandwich. So that's when it started to really take off. And then the so the sandwich got a little bit better. It went from cassava bread to real bread. It went from wild birds to ham, and it started to kind of evolve a little bit. And then the whole story takes a complete and utter twist. One very very tragic day, the largest cigar company of them all, owned by a man whose name is Ebor Y B O R, and his factory just burned to the ground, heartbroken. He did not want to rebuild in Key West. He had some business associates up in Tampa. And they said, Mr. Ebor, why don't you come up here and rebuild your cigar factory? He said, that's a good idea. So he went. And effectually, he took all the workers with him, kind of like left Key West with not enough workers to do cigars. So that industry kind of ceased in Key West and all is now concentrated in Tampa. So up in Tampa, you got to feed these people again. Where we feed them, sandwich, the sandwich really takes off. At the time that the sandwich is really getting good, Um, another group joins them up in Tampa and they're the Italians in the form of bricklayers and the Italians and the Cubans get along in honor of their Italian friends. The Cubans add something you do not see in a Miami Cubano. And that is salami Hmm. to this very day. You can see salami in a Cubano in Tampa, which still has a very large Cuban population. They love it. We think they're out of their minds. (laughs) um, We love it. It's true. So now you have the Cubans and you have the Italians. Then you have a third group that joins them. One of the ingredients in a proper Cuban sandwich, actually two of the ingredients, is mustard and pickles. Doesn't sound Cuban, does it, Brad? Not at all. 
Okay. It's German Jewish. So now you've got three influences on the sandwich. You've got Italian, Cuban, and Jewish. So the sandwich, you know, just really thrives up there. One of the first bakeries that ever bakes Cuban bread. It's all happening in Tampa. You have to bear in mind at this time, this is well before uh, Cuban exodus from Castro. So how is Miami so famous for it? Well, here's the thing. When we came, when Cubans started coming about 1959, you know, they have relatives here on the other coast. They can easily see the sandwich. They take that sandwich. They see it. They want it. They make it better than everybody else. Mm. So that's my story. Sticking to it. Uh, <laughs> but that's who we are here. We, 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 do, and we have such a large population. I, I, I don't know the answer to whether or not our population of Cubans is larger than Tampa today. But I know that there are plenty of Cubans still living in the Tampa area. And they still enjoy their salami on their sandwich. Um, but the sandwich itself, it, a really proper one, you only have the five ingredients. So that would be ham and pork. This was cheese and the pickles, as I mentioned. Cheese and, um, what did I just say? Ha! Ham, pork, Swiss cheese, pickles and mustard. Yes, five. Five ingredients only. And, of course, on Cuban bread. And what makes Cuban bread Cuban bread is that they still, and not all of them, I think, Brent, but they still make it with some lard. And that gives it a really nice tender and delicious mouthfeel, um, which is wonderful. And it's basically a white flour product, but the way that it is baked, it's baked in long loaves, you know, like French baguettes, um, about three feet long. And it's just tender, yet still crunchy. So when you eat one, you can just, you know, hear your jaw going crunch, crunch, which is really nice. Um, so that that's what makes a proper Cubana sandwich. And not everybody makes it this way. There are people who add lettuce and tomato, us Miami purists would never th- dream of that, but I see it. Mayonnaise, I've seen it. I don't like it. <laughs> so really for us, it's those five ingredients only that makes a great Cubana. Plantain tostones. Tell me a little yes. bit about those, Robin, because they sound Ooh. delicious to me. They are. I would step over people just to let you know to get to one of those. <laughs> okay. And I have. Um, it's amazing. So a plantain tostones, for those of your listeners who aren't familiar, a plantain, of course, is part of the banana family. It is not a banana, but it's part of the family. And a tostones is made from one version of the plantain, which is the underripe, very green-skinned plantain. And how it's prepared, it's peeled, it's sliced, it's put into a fryer or a big enough skillet with plenty of oil in it. And you fry it once, you take it out. And then you smash it with a spatula to form almost like a pancake shape, very flat. You put it back in the fryer and fry it again. Then you take it out and you eat it and you're in heaven. Plantain, tostones, anybody coming to visit Miami, you will always find it on our menus, typically as an appetizer that you can all enjoy uh, before dinner. Uh, That's usually where it is, or it may be on the side uh, dish portion of the menu. Sometimes it's served with mojo, which is spelled M-O-J-O, like you're getting your mojo on. Uh, But mojo is made from olive oil, vinegar, sometimes citrus, like sour orange, uh, lots of garlic. It can have oregano in it. It's the way that, you know, mojo is the way that Cubans use it, the way Americans use ketchup. It's, you know, in in everything. Um, So we can dip our plantain tostones in that as well. Uh, They're just delightful. And the taste of them is starchy, almost a little bit floury. And the way we typically eat them is just in the hand. 
um, like you're eating potato chips. They're much thicker than potato chips, of course. And, you know, good ones are just fresh and you just wait for them to come out of the fryer and they're just magnificent. Most people would, if they thought of frying a banana, it, it wouldn't make sense. It would seem like it would get mushy, but you've got all that extra starch in the plantain, which exactly. is what makes it so beautiful and crispy and delicious. Do you have a, a favorite spot or a favorite uh, place to go to get one of these plantain tostones? Oh, wow. Really in Little Havana, I think you can throw a dart, you know, because they're all well-trained to make great tostones in Little Havana. Um some of our favorite places, there is a corner uh, pub. It's actually called El Pub. Um, and they make a very delightful tostones that you can have. Also, there's a place called Old Savannah, which they um, they do something very clever. Um, they make something called tostones cups. So they actually take all of the tostones and mold them together oh. and into like a cup. And then they fill them with uh, ropa vieja picadillo, uh, vegetables, shrimp. And so it's kind of a little more sophisticated version of just eating them like chips. And people love it here. And many of the restaurants, including Old Savannah, which I just said, make a beautiful presentation. So it's really nice for our visitors to experience something so pretty. I've talked to a lot of folks uh, in South America and in Central America, and they always bring up uh, when they talk about food is empanadas. And everyone's got their own little spin. You know, if you go to Chile, if you go to Peru, if you go to Central America, people all do empanadas a little bit differently. Right. What is the empanada in Little Havana like? Is there a specific spin on them? Um, what are they like? Okay. Well, first, they're the best. I'm a little <laughs> biased. Of course. But they're the best. And what makes a Cuban one a Cuban empanada Cuban is that the shell of it, uh, the dough, is made from wheat flour and it's fried. So just to give you a difference between like Colombian, Venezuelan, and Argentinian ones, which are all delicious, and we have all of those versions here in Miami, a Colombian one, the shell will be made from yellow corn. A Venezuelan one, the shell will be made from white corn. And an Argentinian one will be made with wheat flour, just like we do it, but they'll bake theirs instead. They won't fry it. Right, right. So uh, a Cuban one is always fried and typically has, you know, is, is made from the wheat flour. And then, you know, there's a myriad of uh, fillings. Our favorite, my favorite is picadillo. Picadillo is what I consider the Cuban sloppy joe or the Cuban chili, if you will. And that's a mixture of onions and peppers and garlic uh, to start off the sauce and what we call sofrito. And we add uh, oregano and cumin, which makes it very, uh, very, very Cuban. Uh, a little tomato paste, let that all simmer. We add our ground beef. Uh, we add some, uh, some chopped tomatoes to it as well, white wine, and then typically olives. And some recipes actually call for raisins, which that's the way I make my picadillo at home. I, I love that combination with the pica, with the salty and the sweet. Some don't use it, but it's perfectly Cuban with, with or without the raisins. And those are extremely popular then stuffed into an empanada. But you can also get chicken empanadas and pork empanadas, guava and queso, meaning guava and cream cheese, uh, which is a very popular combination. Uh, empanadas, plain cheese ones. So there's a myriad of, of different ones that you can have. And uh, do you have a favorite place to go to get your empanadas, Robin? Well, I'm going to tell you, I will say it again, El Pub. They do. They, <laughs> this they, is the place to go, it sounds like. And how, and, and I'm glad that you, you 
allow me to share that with you because they have a very special uh, feature, if you will, for our visitors is that most people, when they have their empanadas, I mean, you could certainly sit down at a table and eat your empanada, but if you want to be true blue Cuban, what you do is you stand up and you stand having your empanada with some coffee at something called a ventanita. So a proper Cuban cafe always has a ventanita, which means little windows. So on the outside of their restaurant, it looks like a big order up kind of place. And it's just a big window. It's actually a little window, but it's, it looks kind of big, um, but it's actually called little window. And you order from the woman who mans the ventanita, which by the way, you never want to mess with any of those women at the Ventanita. They are cherished <laughs> citizens of Miami. They make the best coffee. They make the best everything. And they can run circles around any barista in any coffee shop. Um, but what they'll do is they'll hand you a empanada and you order some coffee and you actually stand up and you stand at the Ventanita with your friends and you just discuss life. That's what it's all about. It's all social and particularly in the morning hours when we have our older residents in Little Havana, they love to go to the Ventanita, get some coffee, a little bite to eat, and just stand there and contemplate life with their friends. And it's, you know, the one thing about the Cubans, probably everybody may know this already, but they're extremely, extremely social and friendly people. So they do a lot of their socializing over food. And why not when it's so good? So um, that's a ritual to do is more than just sitting down at a restaurant and having an empanada, which is perfectly acceptable, but it's better to stand up and do it, do it tradition style. So did I get this right, Robin, at the La Ventanita, the window is on the outside. Are we ordering from outside? Right. So the window is typically on the outside. Now, now some setups, it depends upon the restaurant. Some setups actually have the window. And then there's the woman inside and she's kind of in like a galley looking area. Okay, it's kind of a long area to prepare her coffee and all the food. And then on the opposite side of that is the inside of the restaurant with a counter. So that counter could almost be considered a ventanita, but it's not really because you really, a ventanita is the little window that you actually want to stand at. So it's, it's typically outside. It may have a little overhang over it because it's so popular. And of course, rain is popular here in Miami. So we want to protect our old folks, you know, actually we want to protect anybody because it's, you know, could rain down on you. And we still want you to experience it. So there's typically a little overhang on, on top of it um, so that you can stand there comfortably. So we go to La Ventanita, we get an empanada and we get some coffee. Now, Cuba is a coffee-growing country. They grow coffee beans there, but we don't get coffee beans in the U.S. Right. from Cuba because of the embargo. Exactly. How do how do folks in Little Havana, how do they like their coffee? Like, what style do we get our coffee in when we go to La Ventanita? It, it's called, it is Cuban style for a number of reasons. Um, the beans are Arabica beans, so they're the nice, really rich, deep, rich, dark roast like an espresso. It's made in the exact same fashion as you would have it in Cuba. And of course, it's made by Cubans. So um, <laughs> we consider it, of course, Cuban. Um, the whole thing is a whole procedure. It's a whole ritual. And I always tell people, please do not leave Miami without going to Little Havana and doing the Cuban ritual. And then you will have lived um, because it's very special. So the coffee, how it's prepared in the restaurants, of course, they use a big espresso machine because there's quantity that they have to produce um in in the home you make it in something called a mocha pot which is a stove pot 
it's a little little diamond shaped pot uh, where you just put it on the stove and you can percolate your coffee. And basically the coffee grinds are put in, they're not tamped down, you put them a little bit loose and uh, it is made in the same fashion as the espresso. Now what really makes a Cuban is as that's brewing, we take another cup, maybe a little silver pitcher uh, or just a deep enough cup and we put some sugar in it. Then as the coffee is uh, ready, we pour some of the coffee over that sugar. And then with a spoon, we whip it like mad, like we're making a mean omelet. And we whip, 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 whip. And eventually enough air is put into it. So it creates something called espumita. You can say espuma or espumita. And that's just a foam. Then the rest of the coffee is poured over that foam so that the coffee goes into the cup and then the foam rises to the top. And that was created, first of all, it makes it look pretty. Second of all, it hydrolyzes the sugar so you get that really nice caramel, almost caramely chocolatey flavor as you're eating it, yes. as you're drinking it, excuse me. Um, but it's also born out of Cuba's tradition of not you know, having a lot. They didn't have cream in buckets the way that the United States does. So in order to produce something that looked like a cream or a crema, they learned how to hydrolyze sugar so that it would resemble a cream, uh, which to, is to our advantage because that's what really makes a Cuban. And to watch these ladies at the Ventanita alone, just doing that, forget about the beach, go stand at a Ventanita <laughs> and watch this because it's like, theater. It's very exciting. Um, I still to this day cannot make a good one myself. Um, but you, what you can do, another way to create Cuban coffee without whipping it, you can actually percolate the grounds and the sugar together. Uh, just mix your grounds and sugar together as it percolates. It will create an espumita. It just won't be as strong. That's all. I love this. The espinita in Italy, you know, we call it the crema, which, you know, doesn't right. have any cream in it. It's just you get that little bit of foam, coffee foam on the top. And I always say that's the best part, you know, the crema on the top. Espinita of the is amazing. It's oh, amazing. It's it a sounds great. Yeah. Let's talk about another drink that we can get in Little Havana, uh, guarapo, uh, made with mm -hmm. sugarcane juice. Tell me a little bit about this. It sounds fascinating. Guarapo is made from what I call the goddess of Cuba, which is sugar. And, you know, if, if there was no sugar, there wouldn't have been any Cuba. You know, it's, it was critical to the island. So sugarcane is where all Cuban life springs from. Um, and we think that garapo juice was actually invented by a man who realized as they were toiling in the hot sun in the sugarcane fields, that if the sugarcane was pressed, it could produce some juice. They would chew on it. And, you know, just the macerating of the sugarcane in the mouth produces some moisture. But if they could really press it all out, it could quench thirst. So that's where we think the legend comes from. But where you get garapo juice in Little Havana, different places. But what we like to do is go to something called the frutaria. The frutaria is where you buy your fruits and vegetables. And they typically have a little area in the fruit and vegetable market where they can press the sugarcane. So the sugarcane goes through a machine that literally just smashes that sugarcane to smithereens until it's completely bone dry. It sucks out all the juice. No water's added and no additional sugar's added. And then it's typically served over ice. Uh, I don't know if they did ice in Cuba. That part I don't know. But Americans, you know, we love our ice. Um, so 
it's very, very refreshing. And it's just straight sugarcane juice. And it is synonymous with Little Havana. That's another drink you cannot pass up when you come to see us here. So before we go, we need to have a cocktail. And let's go get a mojito. Where would we go to get a nice mojito in Little Havana? Right. Well, again, most of the restaurants will serve you a really good mojito. Um, currently on our tours, we, we serve them over at Old Savannah. Sometimes we go different places. They're all actually very good because the Cubans are very devoted to the making of mojito. And that's what we have throughout Little Havana. So probably most places you go will be just fine. And the mojito, I don't know if you know this, Brent, but just also a little trivia for you. We think from legend actually invented by African slaves hmm. on the island of Cuba as sailors would come to Cuba many centuries ago um, when they were ill. And uh, as you can imagine, sailors traveling on those old rickety ships and with not, you know, modern medicine became ill. Um, so, and they became ill with scurvy. So scurvy is a disease that of course we don't see too much of these days, um, but it's a disease that one would get if they had a lack of vitamin C in their diet. Of course, the mojito is one of the main ingredients is lime juice. <laughs> so the sailors got better. I'm but cured. Drink, <laughs> it's magic. They're not cured. Yeah, it's a miracle. But it was disgusting. That first mojito was gross. So I always say, thank God for Mr. Bacardi, because Mr. Bacardi just revolutionized the idea of a mojito into a palatable drink. Those sailors might have gotten better, Brent, but they certainly suffered on the way down. <laughs> Not too good going down the throat. Yeah. So um, Mr. Bacardi, very smartly, uh, he was a Spaniard and he left Spain with his brother and they went to Santiago de Cuba to set up the first Bacardi rum factory. And they took that rum and did something very clever. Um, rum was very harsh. So they put it through charcoal activation mm -hmm. and then white aged in white oak barrels to get it all cleaned up and produce some beautiful rum, which of course is a main ingredient in mojito today. Um, and then a proper mojito is all at once balanced between sugar and lime and of course the alcohol and the mint. Any, any one of those four ingredients can get out of whack. And I'm proud to say really most establishments all over Little Havana will really give you a very, very well-balanced mojito because they know what they're doing. Um, so you just want to be careful when you get one. They can taste too sugary. They can taste too minty. They can taste uh, too rummy or overwhelmingly too much lime. So just getting it right is really the talents of any of the wonderful bartenders that we have throughout Little Havana. Well, Robin Webb of Miami Culinary Tours, it's been great talking to you. And thank you for steering us towards Little Havana, you know, get off the beach for a little while, take one of your food tours and really get to know um, Little Havana through Miami Culinary Tours. Thanks for being on the program. Oh, thank you. And be sure to come on down. Okay, there you go. It's been so hot where I'm at. I don't think there'd be anything better than a nice mojito. Miami Culinary Tours does lots of food tours in Miami, and I've got a link to their website in the show notes at radiomisfits.com slash DED133. You know, back in the day, I had a small hobby farm, and I was thinking just the other day that if I still had that place, this is the time of the year I'd be harvesting garlic scapes. Most people 
don't know what garlic scapes are, but what they are is the flowering seed pod of the garlic plant. When you grow garlic, you cut off the garlic scape to make the garlic bulb grow as big as possible and get it ready for harvest. But you don't just throw away the garlic scape when you cut it off from the rest of the plant. So I was thinking about this, and so I wrote a blog post on my website about garlic scapes and all the wonderful things that you can make with the garlic scape. You can read all about that at DestinationEatDrink.com slash blog. Then get to your local farmer's market, and if you're lucky, they'll have some garlic scapes. A lot of farmers just throw them away because customers don't know what to do with garlic scapes, but maybe you can find a farmer that sells the garlic scapes. They are so good. All right, that's it for this week. Next week, we are in Queens, New York, the most diverse place in the United States. You don't want to miss that episode. Destination Eat Drink is distributed by the Radio Misfits Podcast Network and Chief Mint Muddler, Ed Silla. Thanks, Ed. I'm Brent Peterson. I will see you down the road. Join us next week for another culinary adventure on Destination Eat Drink. A presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. 